Welcome to Head to Toe, a series of interviews with medical professionals, illuminating healthcare's history while shedding light on its future. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Head to Toe. I'm your host, Marie McMillan, and today's special topic is violence in the workplace. What spurred me to do this episode? Well, a myriad of things, but mostly it was this video right here. We're done. We're, we're done. You're under arrest. We're going. We're done. For those of you who haven't heard the story, on July 26th, 2017, emergency room nurse Alex Wobbles was arrested and carried out of the University of Utah hospital she works in for doing her job. Alex refused Detective Jeff Payne's request to draw blood from an unconscious patient because it is against hospital policy, not to mention unlawful, without a warrant or patient consent. The video goes on to show Alex professionally explaining hospital policy to the officer and his colleagues, and a hospital supervisor on speakerphone backing up Alex as well. Then Detective Payne snapped, came at Alex, physically pushed her out of the ER despite her yells, handcuffed her, and put her in his car. The link in the show notes is there on YouTube for those of you who haven't seen the body cam video that went viral now. I saw this video the day it came out while I was at work in the ICU surrounded by other nurses. There were gaping mouths and head shakes and expletives, to be sure, but also several comments varying on the phrase, why am I not surprised? Violence against healthcare workers is not a new concept to anyone who works in direct patient care. All right, let's get to the academic part of it. I am paraphrasing from several sources here, which I will include in a complete bibliography in the show notes, but much of it is from a 2016 New England of Journal New England Journal of Medicine article, which has 41 sources of its own. But information I gathered um, also came from OSHA, the CDC, and the American Nurses Association, among others. Again, see the show notes for the full list. So how do we define workplace violence? OSHA calls it, quote, violent acts, including physical assaults and threats of assaults directed towards persons at work or on duty. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, otherwise known as NIOSH, categorizes violence into four types. Type 1, which is criminal intent. Type 2, which is customer slash client. Type 3, which is worker on worker. And type 4, which is events related to personal relationships. The overwhelming majority of threats and assaults against caregivers come from patients or their families slash visitors, so type 2 violence. And among them, nurses, nurses' aides, and orderlies suffer the most. According to the Joint Commission, hospitals once considered safe places are now facing, quote, steadily increasing rates of crime, including violent crimes such as assault, rape, and homicide. And this rise in violence is blamed on a myriad of things from ER wait times, mental health issues, the opioid epidemic, more people living longer with dementia and memory problems. The list goes on. Here are some disturbing statistics for you. In the past decade, there has been a 110% spike in violent incidents reported against healthcare workers. One study mentions that around 70% of nurses from 210 Canadian hospitals do not even report violent incidents. A 2014 survey showed that type 2 violence accounted for 75% of aggravated assaults and 93% of all assaults against employees. 
Regarding emergency medical staff, one study commented that patients accounted for 90% of violent behavior reported against emergency personnel. A different survey showed prevalence of physical violence toward emergency personnel was 80%, though only 49% ever reported it to police authority. Another large study showed 46% of nurses encountering violence in their last five shifts, and of these nurses, one-third were physically assaulted. ER nurses report 100% verbal assault in the last year and 82% physical, physical assault in the last year. 78% of ER physicians reported encountering workplace violence in the last year, with 75% being verbal, 21% being physical, 5% occurring outside the workplace, and 2% stalking, with 0% stalking being okay ever. Violence is, of course, not limited to emergency personnel at all. A study of pediatric residents reported a third encountering violence during their training, and 71% of those residents reporting zero training to prepare for such encounters. I'm not even going to get into psychiatric wards or dementia wards or nursing homes because let's just say the incidence is even higher and people who work in those environments are at more risk. Everyone who works in healthcare either has been directly involved in some sort of situation or knows someone who has encountered workplace violence. Just ask any nurse. Hi, Sharona. It's Marie. Oh, hi, Marie. So I hear you have a story to tell me. Oh, yeah, I do. Thank you for calling me and thank you for doing what you do. So I actually have two, I mean, several. I've got several dozen, but I have two that I can think of. And uh, the first time, and this is about 10 years ago, that I really noticed, holy crap. People are so aggressive. Um, I was approached by the father of my trauma patient. My trauma patient had like taken a header out of a second floor window. And so he was actually doing well for somebody who has done that. And, and so the father and mother came from another state far away. And um, I, he was my only patient. I rolled out the red carpet for these people uh, when they needed them, when they just, when they, said they must go down to the same floor where he's having surgery to wait to talk to the doctors. I said, they always come here to the unit. They do not go there. So that's not the best place for you to go. And then here's the thing that should have ticked me off. A very determined look on both of their faces. And then one of them saying, we have to be on the same floor he's on. I was like, I said, okay, I understand that. I will, I will let the surgeons know that they need to come there to talk to you. Right. And so because it's a maze of hallways, um, I escorted them from the ICU to the surgical uh, recovery waiting area. I mean, I took them every step of the way and because I knew they wouldn't find it. like <laughs> how I told them. And I was concerned that they might have trouble getting back to the unit. But, you know, they insisted, oh, no. Anyway, some hours later, I um, got a call that my patient was on the way back up. I called down to the waiting room and I asked if they had had, a, if the doctor had seen him. They said, no, nobody's seen this for two hours. And I was like, oh, okay. I, well, I knew the reason for that because they're coming up to the, regardless of what I said, they're coming up to the waiting room. So I said, um, you'll, you'll, it sounds like you're going to need to come up to the, to our waiting room to talk with the doctors then. A little while later, I get a call and it's, and I picked up the phone this call and they said, one of your nurses told us the wrong place to wait, and we need to know how to get back to the unit. Well, that was me, by the way. And I just said, well, okay, let's get you back up here. They got lost again, and then they called again. But 
on and on. They got somebody who didn't know how to tell them to get there. Finally, they made their way back, but now they are pissed. And, you know, their son's doing great post-op, but they are mad. I didn't know they were mad yet, though. And I was ready to go right back into my full customer service mode. But immediately I caught um, sort of this air of oh, just rage coming off of both of them. And so I, you know, welcomed them and said, thank you. And he's been back about whatever, however long it was. And here's what we're doing. And the, and the dad lit into me across the bed. I was across the patient. He lit into me from across the bed saying, you've done nothing. You did nothing. You, you, you know, on and on. And he was like, I'm like, what? <laughs> I am. He's like, was, he's standing on the other side of the bed and he's, he's yes. yelling at you. And he's yelling at me. And I was like, I said, that's not true. I said, I, I've done everything I can. I'm doing everything I can. And he just launched more. And then his wife kind of launched in a little bit. Like verbally. Verbal. And so I said, well, we can't have this discussion in the room. This is not the place for habit. Let's step out. So I stepped out of the room. He blocked my exit down the hall where we could have gone to a conference room or something like that. But he stood, his, he like planted himself so that he was between me and the exit in his son's room and just lit into me. And I, and I just said, wait a minute, this is not okay. You, this, and, and we can't do this in this hallway. This is not all right, right? So what happened next was the charge nurse stepped up, looked at me like I was some kind of a ghoul. What's going on here? And the guy then screamed out something about me. Let me just say, it was clear to me he thought I must have done something wrong. And so then what he did is said, you will not be allowed to come back into the unit if you speak to the staff in this way. This is what the charge nurse said to the guy. That's what the charge nurse. He came back and said, I, he went off on me, and I now I know. And he said, here's what I said to him. So it was only when it happened to him personally that I think he accepted that, uh, you know, it's that guy. It's the one who's behaving irrationally and um, pretty aggressively. That's the person who's got the problem. <laughs> That's the nurse who's standing there trying to go, Wait a minute. Sharona and I talked for a long time, but she was able to give me some additional examples of stories she'd heard from her coworkers. One nurse uh, got slugged in the face and they detached, and it, she suffered a detached retina and also an orbital fracture. So that was by a patient. Another nurse actually did have her arm snapped into by a patient. Uh, oh, I mean, just there's tons of them. Prior to nursing, I worked in security. And I knew, I know, what's okay and what's not okay and how you approach people and how you don't approach people in terms of what will get you kicked out of somewhere, right? And, and definitely committing a crime or, you know, assault or whatever is one of those things. And when I was in nursing school, when I got to my actual lectures for the actual nursing courses, one of my instructors explained to us all that we might actually be, um, you know, basically she didn't say verbally assaulted. That's what she meant. She put it in some sort of a flowery term. And then she said, but this is the worst day of their lives. And I'm to myself thinking, bullshit, on the worst day of my life, I'm the nicest person you want to know. I might not have it all together. I might cry. I might shake, whatever. But I am not going to assault you. And, and so, but people who do that, and that's their way of dealing with, of, of uh, gaining power or, you know, dealing with things, they will do that. But what I'm saying is in the past, they did, people didn't take it out on the staff as much, but they really have. And over the last, say, 10 years, it has, I would say, uh, just continued 
not exponentially so much as it has increased at a steady rate, um, mm-hmm. the amount of sort of verbal abuse and even physical abuse. Why do you think that is? What, what's your opinion on that? My feeling is drugs and mental illness, and there may be some high-functioning people out there who may have issues with substance and with um, rage. And then there are some people who are not so high-functioning, and they have the same issues, right? So that's sort of where I'm at in terms of sort of the level of aggression and violence now, that it's just, you know, death threats. I had another patient threaten to kill me if we couldn't get his mother a brain transplant after she had a big CDA. And if she dies... I'm sorry, did you say a brain transplant? He wanted a brain transplant. And because um, he hold, felt please. That, Let me check in the back and see if we got any brains yeah. in the jars. I'm like, oh, wait, I'm not using keep... mine. Let me donate it. Um, and I'm sorry, you know, he did not know that wasn't possible, and we don't just have a supply of brains. I have no sure, idea. Sure, sure. But when I said, sir, that isn't possible, they, you, it isn't possible for anybody to get a brain transplant. That's when he said, I'm going to kill you. Basically, I was fortunate enough to say, don't you come any closer to me or I'm calling the police. And then he stopped in his track. Okay. If you could estimate of including yourself and all the healthcare workers that you know or have worked with, if you could estimate the percentage that have been verbally abused ever, what percentage would that be? 100%. If you could estimate how much of that, how many of them have been physically abused ever, how much would that be? 100%. I would say just based on my experience that I don't, I think everybody must be experiencing that. Let's be honest. Sick people can be rude, crazy, and aggressive. Their families and friends and visitors have the potential to also be rude, crazy, and aggressive. Sometimes people want the impossible, like brain transplants. And just because it's the worst day of someone's life, it does not give them license to be a complete asshole and assault your healthcare provider, whether it be verbal diatribe or violating physical boundaries. And look, all these percentages reported are just numbers. I'm not sure to what degree we can interpret them. We mostly underreport due to widespread complacency and thinking that this is just part of the job, which I think to some degree is true. Here is a fun fact-filled timeline. Some 1.8 million years ago, two Homo erectus dudes stood upright so they could punch each other in the face. Some 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens kept on punching each other, and anthropologists and sociologists out there can theorize, may conclude that violence might be in our biological nature. Several centuries and countless wars later, modern medicine is born. Ta-da! And we do ridiculous things to living people in order to cure or improve ailments of every kind. Just Google trepanation as an example. Violence against physicians, nurses, and other caregivers go largely undocumented until the 20th century, and the earliest reports are mostly homicidal in nature. Here, I will read a few newspaper clippings. 1889, St. Paul, Minnesota. Unknown desperado cuts a hospital nurse with a scalpel. Ouch. 1907, New York. An Italian man assaulted a nurse and was successfully resisted with a hat pin. He was captured. (laughs) Sorry. Like imagining the nurse taking the pin out of her hat and being like, get away from me. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Uh, 1919, Logan, Utah. Headline, doctor killed in office. His slayer escapes. Shot by unknown man. 1911, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Woman doctor killed. 
Dr. Helen Nabe was a female physician and was murdered in her apartment home, her head being almost severed. She was 35 years old, very attractive, and highly respectable. That was literally in the newspaper. June 1914 in Junquin, Illinois, a doctor, Winston Dunn, shot and killed by the father of a patient he refused to treat due to an unpaid bill. I'm learning that the Library of Congress has a very cool website. Some of these sound funny when you read them out loud, but in reality, it's sad that we come to learn events like these have been happening for a long time and are still happening. 1993, the murder of a state employee in a California hospital prompted OSHA to publish the first set of voluntary guidelines for workplace violence prevention in California. 1996, after pressure from multiple labor organizations, the federal OSHA branch followed suit with similar voluntary guidelines. A four-year research program from 1999 to 2003 influenced these OSHA guidelines, but actual requirements for employers are still not in place. October 23, 2010, a psychiatric technician was murdered by a patient at Napa State Hospital. January of 2015, a cardiothoracic surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston was shot and killed at work by the son of a deceased patient. June 2017, a disgruntled doctor armed with an AR-15 rifle and wearing a lab coat went on a shooting spree at a Bronx hospital killing one other doctor and wounding six. Alex Wubble's story at the University of Utah Hospital happened one month later in July. I hate the fact that I have my escape route at work memorized. I hate thinking about my plan for ducking and covering whenever there was a visitor shouting at the nurse's station. Each of us has to have our own plan for safety, sure, but we're trying to make things better on a larger scale, if not at a glacial pace. Some states have laws designating increased penalties for assault on nurses. I count at least eight states that require public employers to run workplace violence prevention programs, and many private institutions have followed suit in requiring employees to go through such training. As of today, there are no federal requirements that I could find that specifically outline management of violence in healthcare environments, but there are private companies that offer workplace violence training. Moab Training International is just one of those companies. MOAB stands for Management of Aggressive Behaviors, and I had the pleasure of talking with President and CEO Mike O'Malley about this hot topic of violence in the workplace. Hey, how you doing? Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. 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 Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Sure. Anything I can do to help. What prompted you to build an organization based on the mission to provide innovative, comprehensive, and effective non-lethal management of aggressive behaviors? Uh, well, I uh, I actually took this over in 2005. I've been associated with it since the mid-90s. Uh, Moab was created by a very good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Roland Olette, who was a retired lieutenant from the Connecticut State Police. And I know his philosophy back in the 80s was he, you know, he saw things in law enforcement, as I did, that sometimes we actually uh, aggravated situations instead of uh, de-escalating them, and sometimes things went to a a level that they, they probably shouldn't have gone to. Um, we also saw that the officers uh, in law enforcement were not trained properly in how to de-escalate situations. And, you know, we were kind of expected to know how to talk to people, which, you know, it's human behavior. So um, he had a vision to try to help people and keep people safe. That, that was him. And then when I came and joined him in, 19, in the mid-90s, as far as just going through his training classes, I really liked what I saw. I liked the the concept of what he was trying to uh, produce out in the country, and um, 
eventually uh, became one of his senior trainers and then eventually uh, bought the, the program and the company in 2005. Wow, excellent. Thanks Thanks for the background. Um, so you were, you were a police officer yourself, is that what you said? I was for 15 years in the Philadelphia suburbs from 1979 to 1994. And then I vested my pension in 1994 and was out on my own. I started another business that was more police-related uh, training and pepper spray and handcuffing and everything. And then uh, moved on from there, took Moab and had both companies for a while, had over 4,000 instructors that uh, were able to teach the three programs that were copyrighted and trademarked. And then uh, I gave up uh, personal protection, which I started in 1990. I gave it up in 2011, and now this is all I do. Moab is all I do. So Moab provides services to many different areas, such as law enforcement and public safety. Since uh, my podcast centers on healthcare, how did your company come to provide services to the healthcare industry? It was actually started in the early 90s, and, and because I think even back then, there was obviously, there's a lot of anxiety when people walk into a healthcare facility, whether it's a doctor's office, whether it's a hospital, whether it was a drug or alcohol rehab center, sure. um, in a nursing home, for you know, even a nursing home. So there's a lot of anxiety already. That anxiety sometimes escalates to what we call emotional confrontation, uh, where somebody's, you know, kind of yelling at people, using belligerent language and stuff, and then could lead into physical confrontation. So back early in the 90s, he kind of got into uh, some of the hospital systems in the Connecticut area and in Massachusetts, and then uh, just really progressed from there. I will tell you that when I took over in 2005, we were in healthcare facilities about 30% of the time. Today, we spend uh, about 74% of the time in healthcare facilities. Wow. How do you see healthcare organizations dealing with workplace violence today as compared to when you started? Uh, I see a trend. Uh, the last four years has been the absolute busiest in 30-plus years that this program has been in existence. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's you know, Marie, I go to places where nurses are being, have been assaulted. Uh, doctor, the nurse was just tragically stabbed up in the Massachusetts area, and she, she's going to live, but uh, she's going to go through a lot of, I guess, a lot of physical therapy. Um, it was all over the news. Um, you know, I've been to places where doctors have been murdered, um, and, you know, it's just you don't, you don't like to hear. You just, no. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of the things that, that go on within the healthcare systems uh, aren't reported, and they're not, you know, obviously bad enough, I guess, that the, that the news media picks it up, but uh, the stories I hear are just really, really kind of sad, especially from the nursing staff and the support staff. Yeah, going back to, to trends, um, you said in the last four years you've been the busiest. Do you think that's because workplaces are generally more violent, or do you think, is, is there any regulations in place that hospitals are having to adhere to to get training? Or I, I do believe that as a result of the violence that has taken place and the injuries that have occurred to staff and patients mm -hmm. and visitors, well, mainly patients and, and staff, I do believe that the regulatory agencies like CMS, Joint Commission, mm -hmm. Departments of Mental Health, uh, Departments of Family Services, you know, all the kind of the watchdog groups uh, that, that are within healthcare organizations, I do believe that they are being more stringent on what staff needs to get as far as training goes. So I do think that's part of it, and I also think that 
just violence in general is going up, and some of that could be a part of this opioid problem that we're having. Uh, it just could be, you know, the, the economy from 2008, uh, of course, what happened then. Uh, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of those people never came back to work, so you have a lot of psychological issues that are kind of uh, going on around the country, and, and really there's not a whole lot of places to treat people with a psychic issues, so they're going into hospitals, mm-hmm. and they're staying there for periods of time because there's nowhere to place them, and um, that becomes, I think, a burden on not only the healthcare facilities and the staff, but also um, the, the individual themselves and the family members. So I, I do believe it's a combination of both. Um, I wanted to bring up specifically the story from the emergency room nurse at the University of Utah Hospital who got sort of carted out her ER from with, by a, a law enforcement officer there. I wondered yes. if you had if you had any thoughts on that story, or do you think that event will change anything specifically? Well, I just you know it's funny you asked that. I just did a, a program for some doctors outside of Philadelphia in a healthcare facility and. That question actually came up because the doctors were even concerned about it, um, how they're going to be um, approached in a case like that. You know, my feeling was that was that officer was incorrect in what he did. He, there were other channels to follow. Uh, that was not the proper way to handle that. I think anybody in law enforcement would probably agree with that. Um, I, I was shocked, as I think everybody was shocked, that he went to that route. I just think he... You know, he had a job to do. He wanted the job done, and he kind of overreacted. And uh, that shouldn't have been done. It was wrong. And uh, hopefully that will be changed, and we will never see something like that again. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that is not, and this is what I told uh, the doctors when this question was raised to me. I, I said, you know, this is not consistent within law enforcement. This was an officer who apparently or a detective who just something got under his skin. He maybe was overly passionate about getting this, and he kind of lost it. And uh, unfortunately, this is what happened. He's probably a good cop, and he's probably a good guy. But in this case, he certainly didn't do the correct thing, and I I will tell him that. I tell other officers that. And I think most police will agree with what I'm saying there. Well, thank you for your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I think a lot of the nurses – I watched it at the nurses' station, like, the day it came out, and we were – none of us are surprised when we hear stories about violence from, like, patients or visitors or or whatnot. I think what was shocking was that it was from a law enforcement officer, so I really appreciate your insight on that. Thank you. No, you know what, Marie? That should have never happened that way, and I – I felt bad for that nurse. I I watched it, and I was horrified like I think everybody else was. It was like – um, and I'm not saying the officer's a bad person. Sure, he probably sure. Is a good, but he just he lost it. He yeah. just he just lost it. And you know that unfortunately that's human behavior. But you know that nurse should not have been should not have been subjected to that kind of treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do what we were wondering when we watched that video is did did you think that the hospital security could have intervened at all, or it's it seems like. You know that that's they're there to support us in those situations, but when the police come in, you know I'm sure they'd be a little bit confused as to what they can do in that situation. Pretty much the police, you know, in a lot of healthcare facilities there are police in there or retired police. Mm-hmm. Some some places use use some of the departments at you know very busy times of the, uh, of the of the week, maybe Friday and Saturday. They might have a, a officers detailed to the emergency room or whatever. Um, you, you occasionally have, uh, obviously, you have forensic patients in there, from the, so you'll have 
correctional officers. You will sometimes have police over there overseeing a, a prisoner. Um, I, I believe that um, police, uh, I don't think security would have done a whole lot to prevent that because I think, and it, and it should be, uh, if a policeman's called, they pretty much should be making the decisions uh, uh, within that facility. Um, not to say that they should do what, what happened in, in the Utah incident, but uh, they, they, if they're called, then there should be a reason for them to be called, and if they decide to do something, then it should be the staff should back off and let them do it. However, uh, I do believe that um, security, you know, I'm really thinking that they probably just didn't know what to do either. They were, like, dumbfounded by how quickly and how how that was handled. And, and I think they were probably just as shocked as anybody else. I don't think I would expect a security officer to try to intervene what a police officer is doing because then they could end up in the same position and it could be called hindering arrest. Now, whether it, it would probably get thrown out, of course, because I don't think what, they, what was done to her was, was correct. So any court would have thrown it probably out, um, which would have been, you know, some, then everything after that following that would have been the same. Um, so no, I don't. I don't blame the security for not there. I think if somebody was uh, knew him, I think maybe then I think somebody from security, like let's say it was a retired officer from that same department, maybe who had, could have gone up to him and said something to him, like you know, hey, let, let's talk about this before we go any further sure, or something. Sure, sure, yeah. But I, I, that's only because there's a rapport there. Like if I, if I was. I mean, if I had worked with him and, and saw him come in that way, um, I would have probably talked to him. Um, but I don't think anybody I – I wouldn't expect any security officer to do that. I think they would be putting themselves in At a risk, bad situation. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, yeah, no, no I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, they're putting themselves at risk at that point, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So you probably come across a lot of dark stories, it sounds like. What keeps you in this business? You know, I, I love I – love being with the people, and I love knowing that um, 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 whether it's this pro, I just say this program is providing safety, building confidence in the in the staff, and it's not only helping them at work, but this stuff helps them at home. You know, you'd ask me to cite some some situations that I'll always remember. You know, it's always, I mean, not that I like to hear what's going on, but things you don't expect, like nurses and other support staff coming up to you and saying, telling you, you know, this is going to help me at home because I'm in an abusive relationship. That that kind of motivates you to just want to do more to help people. And, you know, I mean, you you went into a profession, the nursing profession, the law enforcement profession. We help people. We, we, we help people out of crisis is what we do. And, of course, we sometimes, they didn't like us for what we did, um, but you know, I just think it just motivates me more to go on. I'm 62 years old, and my family keeps telling me, when are you going to retire? I say, you know, I kind of like what I'm doing. I love meeting the people, and, you know, I just got done training. You know, I, I just spent the month and a half back and forth to Boston doing the 300 emergency room nurses and support staff up at one of the medical centers up there. And, you know, that, that there was just a passion there to go in and do a great class and, and try to do the best you can to keep, get those people safe. They're in a tough area of Boston. And you wanted, so I guess that's the motivation factor. But, you know, you have that. You know, I mean, 
even what happened in Vegas, you know, look at all the people who weren't nurses and weren't police officers that went and tried to save other people. I mean, it's just human behavior. So I just feel feel motivated to really do whatever I can, as long as I can, to to help people. And the, and the, unfortunately, I know because the healthcare industry is an area where people are getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So keeps you go- kind of keeps you going. It, it really does. It keeps you going. Well, thank you so much for all of your work, and you're you're really helping people on a massive scale, so not just helping one people. He had awesome things to say, right? With all the experts out there working on this, what more can we do? According to research, we need more research. I'm talking RCTs, randomized, controlled trial-worthy evidence to support some sort of model out there that protects staff from violence, which is non-existent as of today. October 12th, 2017. But what else? What else can we do? Both my show guests had input on that very question. If you if you could have a hand in changing the way healthcare workers prepare for the environment that is, you know, sick people, um, how would you how would you change it? Well, number one, I wouldn't be teaching them in nursing school to give people a pass for their violence. Right. That's ridiculous. Um, I would. I would say start starting, we'll just start in nursing school. I would start there with assertiveness training because it's amazing how many people are, see assertiveness as aggression and it makes them uncomfortable. Um, and then I think that we need to understand that it's not scientific or provable <laughs> that um, people on their worst day um, will do things that they shouldn't, will do, uh, will commit acts of violence. So that's so that we need to excuse them. It's, it's just not true. It's something somebody made up. So we never have to go after the customer and say that's not good. To that, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, any yeah. questions for me? Anything else you'd like to share? No, I think I think um, you know. I just think that uh, what we're trying to do, and I think there's other programs out there that do the same thing. Um, you know, you're just trying to build confidence in the staff to deal with threatening situations, try to calm people down, understand they're in a tough environment. And, you know, the nursing profession is is tough. What, what I would like to, I wish some of this would be given to the nursing students. I really wish, not necessarily just MOAB, just this type of training uh, because, um, you know, they're not getting it. They're walking into environments that, that can be dangerous, and I don't think they're getting a full uh, really the full story before they go in. If we could get them trained in this kind of stuff before they go into the into their facilities and get on that job, I think it's going to make them a lot safer too. I 110% agree. Thank you. There you have it, friends, and I couldn't agree more. Anybody in higher education listening? I would love to see this happen in nursing and medical schools and various programs for therapies out there. We have to prepare future providers for the realities however harsh they may be. To wrap up some loose ends, the Massachusetts nurse that Mike mentioned, Elise Wilson, who was stabbed by a patient at Harrington Hospital where she has worked for 40 years, is now in recovery from her injuries. The Massachusetts Nurses Association has introduced legislation in her honor called Elise's Law, which requires employers to develop workplace violence prevention plans. I would also like to add that as of this week, Detective Payne is no longer employed at the Salt Lake City Police Department. Another officer he worked with was demoted, and hospital administration at the University of Utah quickly acted in barring police officers from entering their facility at all unescorted. So happy to learn about all of those things. So, 
In summary, we live and have always lived in an unpredictable world and healthcare is becoming more unpredictable all the time. There are many examples and stories out there of bad, terrible, and monstrous things that happen to people who are just trying to take care of sick people. And while it is the darkest parts of humanity that allow us to tear each other down, I like to quote Michelle Obama and say, when they go low, we go high. Mike O'Malley is right. There are countless stories out there about people helping each other in Las Vegas and elsewhere. I personally know some healthcare workers who flew off to the Caribbean to provide firsthand hurricane relief, and the list of Good Samaritan stories goes on. And I'd like to hear all of them, if you have any. Email me at macmillanpages at gmail.com. If you are interested in participating in a podcast episode, email me. Call me. If you have feedback or comments on today's episode, please leave a voicemail on the podcast feedback line at 503-512-0185. Subscribe, like, and listen to the Head to Toe podcast on Podbean, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share it on Facebook or email or however you stay connected. It would really help me out if you help spread the word as this show is 100% self-produced. Again, all the references from today's show are listed in the show notes with the links, but I'd like to specifically thank Dr. James P. Phillips for authoring the article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016, which I heavily quoted. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to my two amazing guest speakers, Mike O'Malley, President and CEO of Moab Training International, and Nurse Sharona, who changed her name in order to protect her anonymity. So today's call to action, if I have one at all, is just to promote awareness that workplace violence is real and it is not going away. Report it. Embrace a zero tolerance attitude. And to everyone out there who consumes healthcare in any way, whether that be filling prescriptions at your pharmacy, going to your doctor's office, visiting grandma in the hospital, getting your flu shot, calling 911 when a bystander goes down, or God forbid, getting admitted yourself, whatever the case may be. Please, please, please keep in mind, don't be a dick to your doctors. Don't threaten, curse, abuse, or assault your nurses. And don't unleash hell on your healthcare team. Until next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care.